0: All right. So um, two places I want to draw your attention to um, as we continue on in our catechetical series. Um, Always reminded that these afternoons that we have together are um, are really, really important. I hope you'd agree because, you know, in in the morning we go through, um, you know, sometimes we go through books together. We go through a series together. And and sometimes they're just free texts, some things that apply to our lives. And then in the afternoon, we kind of focus on the fundamentals of our faith. It's very, very important, you know, because the Bible says that um, that we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, and there's actually, if I can add this one other thing, there's kind of a danger, actually, if you don't do what we're doing in the afternoon service. And that's why I try to encourage uh, members that when I talk to them uh, at Pathway to to come back to the second service is important because it can. There, there's something that easily happens in the Christian life, and there's a warning in the book of Hebrews, if I can get this text right, where the author says, um, it says, for although by this time you ought to be teachers, you are again uh, in need of someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not meat. Meat is for the mature, um, and milk is for the immature, but meat is for the mature who have their senses trained to discern between good and evil. And we, we all want to grow and we all want to mature in our faith. And, and to that end, we need to understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And particularly, we need to understand, as we're going to see this afternoon, the proper relationship between faith in Christ and godly living. And, and it seems pretty clear we should have faith in Jesus. We should have godly living. But, but what should be the proper relationship? And what should be the proper balance? We're going to look at that uh, this afternoon. So what I want to do is I'm going to read from Luke chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 43, 44, and 45. Just a, a short reading here. And then um, I'm going to draw your attention to question and answer 61 through 64. Now we followed 61 through 63 already. And now we're just going to focus on 64, but I want to put question answer 64 in the context of 61 through 63. So uh, let's begin with the Gospel of Luke, uh, 6 verses 43 through 45, a simple teaching of Jesus and a simple illustration. Jesus says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So obviously there should be a continuity between faith and fruit-bearing life now. All right, so if we put on the Heidelberg there, next, got that, uh, there you go. All right, now you see that's question answer 61. You might say, well, we already covered that a few weeks ago, didn't we? And we we did. It's a little bit of review here. So I'm going to read question answers 61, 62, and 63, just myself, and then when we come to question answer 64, I'll read the question, and then together we'll give the answer, okay? So here's here's a question. We're dealing with, with fundamental theology here. Why do you say that you are righteous, or we could say, in right standing with God only by faith, and that's faith in Christ. Well, it's not that I am acceptable to God on the account of the worthiness of my faith, but only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness, or this righteous standing before God, and a declaration from God that I am righteous, and make it my own by faith only not faith and works faith only now question answer 62 but why can't or but why can't our good works not be our righteousness before god or at least a part of it and the answer is because the righteousness which can stand before god's judgment must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of god whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin but do our good works earn nothing even though god promises to reward them in this life and the next This reward is not earned. It's a gift of grace. Then this final question. Does this teaching not make people careless and wicked? Now let's say this together. No, it is impossible that those grafted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. All right. You may remember, um, and uh, if you were here um, over the last couple of months, you will you, have, you will have followed this, this kind of trajectory of this document that we're going through called the Heidelberg Catechism. And you, you may remember, and I've, I've been saying this over the past couple of weeks, that there, there is a certain sequence that is going on in, in the catechism's treatment of the relationship between faith and works. There's a, there's, a, there's a logical progression, and you remember that I said there seems to be here, if you can imagine this, a catechist, that's a teacher, who, who asks a question, and then the question is answered, and then there's a, there's a questioner or a detractor that hears, hears what is being taught by the catechist, but the detractor, the questioner is going, yeah, but you can imagine he's going, yeah, but what about this? And a catechist is hearing this, and a catechist is answering that detractor, that questioner. And then the question of the detractor says, "Okay, I heard you, but what about this?" And then the catechist responds to that. And then, and then the the person listening, the detractor again says, "Well, yeah, what about this?" And you got this back and forth going on here. And that's that's the nature of of a catechism. And by the way, the Heidelberg Catechism is is not the only catechism out there. Um, it's said that. Um, in the 1560s alone, when the Reformation of the church was just raging, there were over 60 catechisms and confessions that were written to explain the faith of the people. And the Heidelberg is only one of them, but it's one that is prized by many people for its irenicism, that is, its peaceful approach and winsome approach to the faith. And thankfully, this church embraces that as one of the confessional standards of our church. But anyway, there's this back-and-forth catechetical Uh, discussion going on regarding the matter between faith and work. So let me, before we get into the passage, let me just spend a couple of minutes, and let's engage our imaginations. And try to put yourself into this picture, okay? And let's say you have a friend. Let's say he's a male friend, and this friend of of yours you've known for a while. And he's been been, um, asking some questions about the Christian faith. Let's say he's either outside the faith the Christian faith, or let's say he's, he's kind of he's kind of dabbling in it, he, and he's, he's curious, all right, so you're, you're interacting with this male friend of yours, and let's say you're kind of picking up on a discussion that you've been having with him, not only about the reality of God and who God is, but who he is as a human being, and the need for him to be reconciled with a holy and a just God, to be in a right relationship with this God, and he's been wrestling with this, okay, and let's say you're you're at a coffee shop and you 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 enter back into the discussion and you say to this individual you may remember in the in the course of our discussion where you were wondering why is it that i can't have a good relationship with god just on the basis of being a good person in other words why can't i climb this ladder to god and just be accepted by him because even though I'm not the best person in the world, still I'm not a murderer and I'm not an adulterer and I'm not a thief and all of that, and so why can't he just accept me for who I am as a generally good person? And you've been interacting with him. And you say to this person, well listen, if you recall, we've been, we've been going through this, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So we all need Jesus, and the Bible teaches us we all need to give ourselves to Jesus, and we all need to embrace Jesus by faith. What do we need to embrace specifically by faith? The work of Christ. Not our work to put us in a right relationship with God, because we can't do that, but we have to embrace the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his, all his obedience to the Father's will, so that when we embrace Jesus in faith, God imputes or he applies that work and obedience to G, of Jesus Christ to us, so that on that basis, we are then declared in right standing with God. Not because we're good ourselves, because of the goodness of Christ given to us, that clothes us like a beautiful robe, that gets at the heart of the gospel. All right, so bear with me here. So your friend is listening to this, and he's going, okay, I get that. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that faith itself being a gift of God to us through His Spirit. That's what you said last time. I get that. But what I can't get is why is it that at least some of my goodness or some of the good things that I do in this life at least doesn't contribute in some way to my standing with God. It all just seems so easy. All you got to do is believe, right? So why is it that some of the good that I do can't merit favor with God? And what's going to be your response to your friend? Well, you say to your friend, well, the thing is, is is the reason why you can't work your way to God, you can't climb that ladder to God on the basis of your so-called good deeds is because, honestly, your good deeds can't measure up to the standard of God. And your friend says, well, what, what standard is that? And you say, standard of perfection. God requires perfection. See, you say to your friend, God doesn't grade on a curve. He demands perfection. That's a perfection that you can't give. You can't supply a quantity and quality of works to merit the favor of God. That puts you in a bad position. That's why you need Jesus. And your friend listens to this, and then he says to you, yeah, but remember you told me to read the Bible and start reading the Bible? So I started reading my Bible, and as I was reading my Bible, I I read about rewards that, that, in the end, that for those who follow Jesus... And, and live their life for Jesus, God is actually, in the end, he's going to reward them. That's what the Bible says. It talks about rewards all the time. And you say to your friend, well, it's true that God does reward the lives that we live on this earth, which is an expression of our faith, but, but, but he doesn't do it because our good deeds are so meritorious and they meet his standard. The reason why he rewards our good works is because he's a gracious God, and it, 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 it pleases him to do that. Not because he has to, but just because he wants to. He's a gracious God. Hmm. So one final thing, your friend starts to think about this, and he says, okay, so again, we're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and not our work, because our works cannot measure up to the standard of God. So, huh, well, I guess I can go live my life the the way I want to live my life. And he puts it kind of crassly, I guess I can live like hell, because you know what, I'm going to heaven anyway, right? Because I'm saved by faith, not by what I do. By the way, this is during the time of the Reformation, the the, the Roman Catholic Church, this is precisely the problem they had with Protestantism, and the way the Protestants handled the relationship between faith and works. They said, if our our works do not contribute in some way to our standing with God, all that does, it creates indifference. It creates presumption. You know what I mean by that word? Presumption means like, hey, I'm good to go. I can presume I'm good with God, and I can start getting lax in my faith and lax in my walk with God because it doesn't really matter in the end because I'm not saved by my works, I'm saved by my faith. That was the concern of the Catholic Church. How are we going to respond to that? Well, okay, get to the passage with Jesus. Hmm, 43, 44, and 45. Um, Can you put that back on there, please? Uh, Go to the passage. Okay, take a look at that. I'm going to read it again. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Now, really simple teaching of Jesus. He's talking about trees, he's talking about figs, and he's talking about grapevines. And basically, Jesus is saying listen, a good tree always produces good fruit. Now, maybe you have fruit trees on your property. If you live in an apartment, it's not an issue. But maybe you might have fruit trees in in the complex where your apartment is. But if you own property, maybe you have some kind of fruit tree. Maybe you have an apple tree. And sometimes apples, the apple tree will produce fruit that's just mealy. Or it's filled with worms or what have you. What that tells you is probably that apple tree fundamentally is not as healthy as it can be. And Jesus is saying, listen... If a bad tree, a diseased tree, will produce diseased fruit, but a healthy tree, a good tree is going to produce good fruit. A good apple tree is going to produce good apples. A fig tree is going to produce good figs. And consequently, also grape vines, if they're healthy, they're going to produce grapes. Thorns don't produce figs. Brambles or pricklers are not going to produce good grapes. What is Jesus' point in regard to our faith and the lives that we live? What Jesus is basically stating here, and what the Bible states elsewhere, and what the Catechism really underscores, is that if you have faith in Jesus, if you are a Christian and you have genuine faith in Jesus, there is going to be, how should I put it, um, a, a, a natural spillover. So, so there's, no, there's no person... That you find in the Bible, no, no person that you find in Christian experience who has a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, who does not, as a general rule, I mean, we all slip up, we all sin, right? But as a general rule in terms of lifestyle, does not reflect a life of godliness, you never find somebody who, who expresses genuine faith in Jesus Christ who's not actually living for Christ. Why is that? As Jesus says, because good trees produce good fruit, good figs trees produce good figs, good grapevines produce good grapes. This is why the Catechism puts it like this in answer 64. It is actually impossible for those who embrace Christ in faith and who are united to him by faith, and who are engrafted into him as a vine. It is impossible for these kinds of people not to produce fruits of gratitude, whereby you say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for all that you have done for me. You know, um, let me take you to another passage. Can you go to Romans chapter 6? Can you put that up there? Okay, just leave it there for for a moment. All right. This comes from the Apostle Paul in in the book of Romans. He's following up on Jesus' teaching. And he asks this question What should we say? Shall we sin so that grace may abound? Now, elsewhere in in the Bible, in the book of Romans, actually, it says, um, Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Well, logically speaking, somebody could say, well, if it's true that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, (laughs) well, why don't I just keep sinning so that more and more grace may come to me? And our natural response to that is like, that's silly. doesn't make any sense. And it's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. He says, by no means shall we sin so that grace may abound. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If you say you've died to sin and you found your new life in Christ, why would you want to live in sin anymore? You don't want to do that. You want to be pleasing to Him. Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. So here's basically what Romans 6 is saying. When you are a Christian... And let's say when when people who are not raised in the Christian faith by the grace of God express faith in Jesus Christ and submit their lives to Him, you then, through faith, become united to Christ. You become one with Him. You become one in His crucifixion, in His death, in His burial, and in His resurrection. So that means that That when you come to Christ by faith, united to Him by faith, you have have crucified that old life in you, you have put it to death, you have buried it, but more than that, positively, you have come to new life in Jesus Christ. So there is no one who has united himself or herself to Christ by faith and have died to their old ways who do not necessarily then also come to life and start living that life of godliness before Christ. Now again, do we do that perfectly? No. But fundamentally, that's what we're committed to. Again, there is, I want to underscore this, is no one who comes to faith in Jesus Christ who in his heart says, you know, I'm just not, <laughs> I'm just not interested in, in doing the hard work and walking with him. Everyone who's truly converted wants to serve the Lord out of just a heart of gratitude and out of love. There's that, as I said before, there's that natural spillover. Let me give you two examples of that. One from the Bible and one from uh, personal experience. Can you get the next passage? Okay. So you remember the Apostle Paul was pastoring a church in Corinth, Greece. Corinth was a lot like our culture, just a highly uh, commercialized and highly sexualized culture. And you had a number of people, citizens of Corinth, who had come under the sway of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and they were converted by it. And they died to themselves, basically, and they gave their life to Christ. The problem is they they kind of, as they say, you can take the boy off the farm, but you can't take the farm out of the boy. It doesn't happen overnight, and they carried some of their sins. Nonetheless, Paul considered them as Christians who have fundamentally died to those old ways. They just carried some of the vestiges of that with them into the church. And so Paul's ministering to them, and then he goes on to say this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's warning them about about falling into old ways and practicing their old habits. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor vilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking about a lifestyle of these things. And if you give yourself as a lifestyle to these things, and you practice them in your life, he says, you're not going to enter in the kingdom of God. And if you think you've entered into the kingdom of God and united to Christ, but you're still living in terms of your practice in these kinds of lifestyles, well, then you're not a real Christian. Now, notice what he says. I, 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 I think it's one of the most beautiful phrases in the Bible. He says, such were some of you. <laughs> he doesn't say, yeah, you claim to know Christ, and now you're living this way, and you're practicing this, and now I don't think your faith is real. He says, no, no, no. He says, that's, that's not the way you are. He says, that's the way you were. That's the way you were. But he goes on to say, you were washed, maybe washed by the blood of Christ or internally washed by the Spirit. You were sanctified. You're set apart to Christ and you were justified. That is, you were declared to be in right standing with God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. But now you're living life for the Lord. You're living a life of godliness out of gratitude to Him. One other quick uh, example. Back in Toronto, there was a... I, I may have shared this once with you before. There was a, a woman living in the neighborhood. Her name was Patsy Murphy. And I, I bring her name up because... There was a couple who visited, an older couple from Toronto that was in the first pastoral charge, goes back 30 years ago, and we talked a bit about Patsy. So remember Patsy? And I remember Patsy because I'll keep this short. In the, uh, There was an apartment complex near the church, and Patsy was living with a guy named Bud, and they had a daughter, Lisa, and one other child, uh, Mandy, I think her name was, it just came to mind. Anyway, and Patsy was just this foul-mouthed woman. And sometimes when, when pastors get into the company, of people like that, people kind of watch their P's and Q's, as they say, because you know, he's the man of the cloth, they understand that, that wasn't the case with Patsy, man, she was just throwing all kinds of vulgarities out, and I just, you know, and so we just kept talking, to make a long story short, we started studying the Bible together, he, her and her, and her live-in husband, well, it wasn't even the husband, this guy that she was living in, started studying the Bible together, and I noticed, here's the thing, after about a month, all of a sudden, her mouth changed, and she wasn't throwing out vulgarities at all. And so you say, I, I, what, what happened there? The thing was is that she was, she, she was coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and she realized that as she was coming to faith in Christ, and as the Spirit of God was working in her, she knew that she couldn't continue to be that way anymore. Such was Patsy Murphy, not such is Patsy Murphy, but such was. Why is that? Because her true faith was spilling over into a life of godliness so that her mouth started to speak, as Jesus says in the text, that which now filled her heart, which was the grace of God, faith in Christ, and the life of the Spirit. By the way, this this couple who we had over last week said, and you know Lisa, she said, Lisa went on to, oh well, I, I'm, she, she did some things and she said, but now, now she's a Christian. She's going to a local alliance church in, in Toronto and she's, she's now walking with the Lord and, and Lisa said, she called Mary and said, Mary, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Christian now. I'm a Christian. See, my, The point is, is that true faith always spills over into a life of godliness. Always. So, true faith always produces good fruit in a changed life. And if it doesn't, and this is where we need to search our own hearts, if if it doesn't produce a life change within us and a commitment to godliness, then we have to ask ourselves the question, okay, then what really is the substance of my faith? Is there substance there? What's really the makeup of my faith? Or maybe even more fundamentally, do I actually possess true faith? Do I actually possess genuine faith? You know, um, The the Apostle Peter says, make your calling and election sure. Don't presume. Just make your calling and election sure. The Apostle Paul says, test yourself to see that you are in the faith. Um, Elsewhere, in um, James puts it like this. He says, well, we know this verse well, don't we? Faith without what is dead? Faith without works is dead. True faith and works. True faith and godly living go hand in hand, and if they don't, and if we find ourselves slip-sliding away, then the question is not only what are we to do about it, but what what is what is genuine faith, what does that genuine faith in our lives actually look like, what should it look like, and um, I can think of no better passage to go at this point than 2 Peter, can you give the last um, text up there, all right. Here's where we read. Because Peter is anticipating this very question. He says this For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Some translations have it moral excellence, and virtue, knowledge, and knowledge, self control, and self control, steadfastness, and steadfastness, godliness, and godliness, brotherly affection. And here's the most important one. And brotherly affection, love. Now he says, if you possess these qualities, if they're yours, but also this, if they are growing in you, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities... You will never fall. Now, be careful here, because you look at this, and these are really basic qualities, right? Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, you know. And, and uh, sometimes, you know, um, this, this almost looks too basic to us. Almost looks too basic. But, 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 you know, you, you, look at, you look at individuals in the world and you see that they, they, they struggle with virtue, they struggle with self-control. Sometimes people just give themselves over to, to just a, a kind of life that is so dishonoring to God. And then you sometimes question yourself, am I, am I really practicing virtue? Do I really have knowledge? And, and, and again, I want to, in, in the sermon, I want to be careful that, that from the pulpit, you are not invited to doubt yourself because none of us, none of us carries what Peter's talking about here. None of us does this perfectly. We, we, we kind of, like I oftentimes say, we, we take two steps forward and we step back, two steps forward, one step back and all that. And the, the question is, in the midst of our stumblings in life, what do you do in the midst of those stumblings? Do you beat yourself up? Right, you start doubting that one day you'll be with the Lord in glory? You take a look at all those people in the Bible who stumbled over themselves. You think of King David or you think of Peter or you think of others in the Bible. The, 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 the thing that they did is they repented. They, 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 they wanted to live right before the Lord and they cried out to him. The Lord supplied them exactly what they needed. But the point that the Bible makes is if, if you claim to know Christ but you, you, you fail to live out these qualities in your life because you've given yourself over to another lifestyle and you're not repentant, that's where you've got to start really asking yourself the question, am I really walking with Jesus Christ? So always always through preaching, we're called to enter into introspection and, and commit ourselves in the final anal- analysis to resting in Christ and to rest in Him as a sufficient Savior. So I leave you with this: the kind of fruit that the Bible calls us to, and that Jesus talks about here, is that the kind of faith that, or the fruit that we are kind of bearing—a a very much a true faith-based fruit and a countercultural fruit—or if it's not. If it's not, flee to Jesus, and pray to Him, and and Jesus says. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask, just ask me, and, and I, will, I will give to you without measure so that your joy will be made full. And, and, and if you say, you know, these are the qualities, they, they are not reflected in my life perfectly, but I do want to live a life of gratitude for the Lord, but I want to live even more so, then pray that prayer to Lord, give me more. <laughs> That's the kind of prayer that God never says no to. He always answers that prayer in his time and his way, but he always answers that prayer. And that should be our desire, right? Every one of our desire. Lord, help me to live that life of joy and that life of thankfulness, the life of gratitude for everything that you have given me. May that be in our heart. And, And in fact, why don't we pray for that now and then we'll have a discussion time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this afternoon, um Lord, it's 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 a simple teaching, and we know that. Faith always results in fruit. And Lord, we pray that the work that you have done in us, you would continue it to the day of Jesus Christ, to the day that He returns that you would work in us a desire out of a spirit of gratitude and joy to render our lives to you as a living sacrifice. We all need help in that, Lord, because every one of us, I mean we we stumble all the time. But when we are weak, oh God, you are strong, and you promise to do immeasurably more than what we ask or imagine according to your power, through your word and spirit that you promise to work in us. So God, grant that to us, we pray. Instill in us the power and desire to live our lives for you. And again, not only for your glory, but for, for ultimately for our joy. God, grant that, we pray. And we trust that you will, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.